Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Minnesota reaches an all-time low uninsured rate, how new aspirin recommendations may impact Minnesotans, and part two of Mike Grimm's spotlight on NCAA basketball coming to the Twin Cities. But first, at the Minnesota Capitol, an important speech kicked off a week that became a flurry of legislative activities before an end-of-month deadline and the final push to ending the legislative session by May 23rd. MNN's Bill Werner has a report for us. Scott, every week officially starts on Sunday, and this one was that way for sure, as Governor Tim Walls gave his fourth State of the State address, delivered in person at the Capitol for the first time since the onset of the pandemic. Probably the biggest issue, one that's still unresolved. I want to be clear about this. We can cut taxes for the middle class without cutting taxes for massive corporations and the wealthiest people in Minnesota. They don't need a tax cut. Senate Republican Majority Leader Jeremy Miller responded a $9.2 billion surplus means the state is over-collecting taxes. Our proposal gives the money back to the taxpayers, not with a one-time check, but with permanent, ongoing tax relief. If we really are serious about getting tough on crime, then we need to get tough on the causes of crime because that's where it begins. The governor's address spotlighted sharp differences between Democrats and Republicans, and one day later, the GOP-controlled Minnesota Senate passed its Get Tough on Crime package. More cops results in less crime. If someone breaks the law, there should be consequences. Majority Leader Miller, but Roseville Democrat John Marty says... This isn't tough on crime, this is dumb tough. This is taking things that haven't worked in the past and retrying them again. Alexandria Republican Bill Ingebrigtsen responds. Every night there's crime going on. Unbelievable amounts of crime going on. That's the data that I bring. That's the data that my constituents are concerned about. St. Paul Democrat Sandy Pappas fired back. If you were sincere about really wanting to address the problem of crime in the state of Minnesota, we would be funding dozens of programs. Crime prevention is what we should be focusing on. But a good number of Democrats broke ranks and voted for that bill, likely signaling how big an issue crime will be in the 2022 campaign. Minnesota House took action this week on another very important issue, education, passing a bill that would use over $3 billion dollars of the state's budget surplus for E-12 education through 2025. For far too long, we've made excuses. Oh, we don't have the resources. Oh, we just can't. Well, members, yes, we can. We have the resources. Minneapolis Democrat Jim Davney, Little Falls Republican Ron Creshaw responds, it's not a Minnesota public school bill that the House passed. It's a Minneapolis and St. Paul funding bill where the districts made huge concessions to teachers unions. Following this three-week strike that denied children 14 days of instruction, the Minneapolis school district is on the hook for nearly $80 million. And luck would have it, this bill provides Minneapolis with about $80 million over the next two years and beyond. Also in his State of the State address, Governor Walls urged the legislature to break its deadlock over COVID worker bonuses, plus refill the unemployment insurance fund to avoid business tax increases beginning April 30th. The governor says lawmakers agreed on money for hero checks, and frontline workers have been waiting since last May. If we're getting close to a compromise on this, let's finish this deal and let's finish it now. 
The House made the first overture after the governor's entreaty, passing a bill the following night that would take $2.7 billion of the budget surplus, the amount Republicans want to replenish the unemployment insurance fund and forestall business tax increases. Minneapolis Democrat Mohammed Noor. We are taking care of employers so that they can receive their credit, so that they can pay the accurate amount before the end of the month. But Republicans would also have to agree to $1 billion for frontline worker COVID bonuses, four times what the legislature approved last summer. It would give all essential workers that are covered in a bill $1,500 paychecks if they are eligible. New Hope Democrat Cedric Frazier, but North Branch Republican Ann New Brindley warned. This doesn't have agreement in the Senate, and it certainly doesn't have agreement with Republicans in the House. It should be equally clear to the Senate that to get this done, they need to come up significantly off of $250 million for frontline workers, which is what we already agreed to when we didn't know about a $10 billion surplus. Speaker Melissa Hortman, the House passed that bill against a backdrop of closed-door negotiations by legislative leaders. And late Thursday morning, two days ahead of the deadline, they announced a deal. Really, really excited that we've got this deal done and that those Minnesotans that stepped up during COVID, those frontline workers, will finally be able to get those thank you bonus checks. Stillwater Republican Senator Karen Housley. House Democrats got $500 million. That's only half of what they wanted for COVID hero bonuses, meaning about 667,000 frontline workers will be eligible for around a $750 check from the state. Senate Republicans got all of what they wanted, $2.7 billion, to fully replenish the COVID-depleted unemployment insurance fund, thereby avoiding business tax increases on April 30th. Minnesota Chamber of Commerce, meanwhile, applauding legislative leaders and the governor for reaching agreement to replenish the state's COVID-depleted unemployment insurance fund. Chamber President Doug Loon stresses some businesses have already made those higher tax payments, and so the state... Now they need to issue um, expeditiously credits or refunds the businesses so cash flow is not pinched and they can and businesses can survive this important period. Minnesota Chamber of Commerce President Doug Loon. Scott? Thanks, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Ranger Station. Yeah, hi. I'd like to report a bear sighting in the forest. Uh-huh. One second I'm having a smoke. Next thing I know, I'm face-to-face with Smokey Bear. Wow. And he told me it only takes one spark to start a wildfire. Did you know nine out of ten wildfires are caused by humans? I had no idea. That's why Smokey's famous and you're not. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Minnesota health insurance customers got some good news this week. Here's Minsure CEO Nate Clark with an explanation. So there was just a new report that was released by the Minnesota Department of Health, and it shows that the state's uninsured rate in 2021 um, has dropped to 4%. And that's the lowest level it's ever been measured. That's really great news. 
And for as far as Minsure is concerned and Minsure's customers, what? How does the great news affect Minsure customers? You know, I think that it, it affects customers, Scott, because it's the result of a lot of work that's happened in the state to actually reduce insurance premium rates and make it possible for more folks to come to the exchange and to get enrolled. I mean, we've talked earlier about um, how important premium tax credits are in lowering the cost of monthly premiums for folks who purchase um, plans through the exchange. And a lot of that happened thanks to the 2021 um, Federal American Rescue Plan Act that was a relief package that was passed in March of last year. And it's just had a huge difference here in Minnesota. I mean, for example, um, 70,000, over 70,000 of our enrollees are actually receiving enhanced benefits as a result of that. Over 10,000 Minnesotans who never received benefits before are now receiving benefits. So those kinds of things in combination, I think, have really had a huge impact in not only helping folks come to the exchange and find coverage, but also to keep that coverage. And that's translated into a lower um, uninsurance rate. And is that something, Nate, that's going to be continuing for the foreseeable future? You know, it's going to continue for the remainder of this year. And, you know, I appreciate your calling that out because it's a huge um, concern for us. Uh, The American Rescue Plan Act is scheduled to expire at the end of this year, this calendar year. And so we're working with other state exchanges around the country and also with our colleagues in the state. Just make sure that Congress is aware of the importance of, of that act and what the consequences could be if, in fact, that um, goes away. I mentioned earlier that, that over 70,000 Minnesotans are actually receiving enhanced benefits um, as a result of that act. Those benefits are going to go away if this act expires, and all of those consumers are going to see an increase in their out-of-pocket costs. You know, we figure that that as a result of those um, benefits expiring, premiums could increase between, you know, 30 and 40 percent, depending on where in the state of Minnesota you live. And I also mentioned that there were over 10,000 individuals who are now receiving um, tax credits for the first time. Boy, if this legislation expires, those individuals are going to lose access to all of their current financial help. And I mean, this just spells... um, It's a really bad picture for all of Minnesota simply because it means that all of those people who are now benefiting from these enhanced benefits, those are going to go away. And insurance is just going to become more expensive. And we're afraid that that higher premium costs, higher out-of-pocket costs are going to result in folks dropping their coverage, and that'll increase the the uninsured rate. Right. So is there something that consumers can do? I mean, do they have a voice in this somehow? Absolutely. I mean, we encourage everybody to get in touch with your your congressman, make sure they understand that the benefits, the enhanced benefits they're receiving are important, and just drive home that it's important for this legislation to get approved at the federal level. I know we're doing it with our contacts um, at the federal level, and I know that others in the, in the state administration are as well, but it's just really, really important. Just an example, um, for example, if you're, if you're living in Moorhead or Fergus Falls, Alexandria, that part of the world, um, it's, if in fact uh, these these benefits expire, seventy they're going to see a reduction in their financial help. You know, of about seventy three percent. That means that premiums are going to increase over thirteen hundred dollars per year. If you're living in Rochester, Mankato, Winona, or Austin, 
those premiums are going to increase about $1,500 per year. So it's just really important that folks reach out, get involved, and make certain that, 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 that our congressional leaders understand the importance of these. Uh, Nate, while I have you here, uh, I, I guess I'm curious, is there anything else that you want uh, consumers to know or anything happening at Minsure that Minnesotans need to be aware of at this time? I think just the key thing is, you know, we have our open enrollment period. It happens once per year, um, beginning in November and then ending in January. But it's just important for folks to know that that they can enroll in, throughout the year based on, you know, their life circumstances, their situation. So, for example, if someone's been employed and they unfortunately lose their job and they lose their health insurance coverage, they can come to the exchange and likely get enrolled. You know, members of a federally recognized tribe can enroll on the exchange throughout the year. Other life changes, you know, for example, a change in your address, that can result in eligibility to get enrolled. So I think just the key message, Scott, is if you are living in the state of Minnesota, you're a resident, if you are uninsured, please call us here at Minsure and let us help you understand your options for enrollment. Don't go unenrolled because there's a good chance that there's a pathway to help you get the coverage that you and your family need. That's Minsure CEO Nate Clark. Minnesota Matters returns after this. back to Minnesota Matters. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force this week introduced new recommendations for starting the daily use of low-dose aspirin to prevent a first heart attack and stroke. The recommendations are based in part on Health Partners Institute data published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Tasha Radel has more. The data was generated by a mathematical model that Health Partners Institute created to assess the potential benefits and risks of starting daily low-dose aspirin. Joining me today is Stephen Damer, Senior Research Investigator at Health Partners Institute. Stephen, can you give us an overview of the study? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity and the interest. Uh, so the, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, as you, as you know, evaluates uh, different preventive strategies uh, um, for the, the general population and and studies these intently on a fairly routine basis now, about every five years. And as a part of that process, they uh, almost always commission a an updated review of the latest scientific research on a given topic. And, uh, and so that's usually a part of it. And then sometimes a part of it uh, is additional contextual work um, that, that may help to uh, add additional information uh, from just the bits of different scientific evidence. So our role, the, uh, so in this case, both pieces happen, a, a, a review of the latest uh, data and, and research on aspirin happened. That was done by colleagues of ours at uh, Kaiser Permanente in uh, Oregon. And our role was to do a computational modeling study to take the latest scientific evidence from um, the team in Portland and translate it into the long-term uh, benefits and harms that might be expected with starting aspirin to prevent first heart attack or stroke for various population groups to help bridge the different data sources and help the task force make 
recommendations specific to uh, particular popula population groups in which they might expect the long-term uh, balance of benefits relative to harms for, for aspirin, for starting aspirin to prevent a first heart attack or stroke makes sense for them. So from your findings, when is the best time to start taking aspirin to prevent heart attack and stroke? Yeah, absolutely. So our, uh, what we found in our modeling study is that uh, adults uh, between the ages of 40 and 59 with an elevated risk of cardiovascular disease had higher benefits, um, or had larger benefits relative to harms uh, over their lifetime relative to, to those who wouldn't have started aspirin. So let me say that again. Uh, for uh, adults 40 to 59, uh, starting aspirin to prevent a first heart attack or stroke for those with elevated risk was found to be net beneficial for them. Uh, we also found in, uh, that adults over the age of 60 starting aspirin in, in most cases would be expected to have more harms than benefits. The harms uh, often are realized in terms of uh, bleeding events, potentially serious bleeding events, uh, such as the intestinal tract or brain. And uh, the starting after the age of 60, uh, likely those harms would outweigh the benefits and would not make sense uh, for them. And, and that's what our, uh, the computational modeling data showed, and the, the new task force guidelines align quite closely with, with those findings in terms of the recommendations for those two specific um, groups. Stephen, for someone wanting to start taking aspirin, who would be a good candidate? And I'm guessing before starting, uh, they should probably visit their doctor ahead of time. Yes, I think, thank you for making that point. For, for all patients, whether considering starting aspirin or if you have been taking aspirin and are now wondering what's appropriate to do, they should be consulting their own medical professional. Uh, the, the guidelines, uh, especially as they're being communicated, uh, you know, have broad strokes of what uh, may be appropriate for folks, but there's a lot of nuance and a lot of individual uh, circumstances that uh, patients will want to discuss with, with their own uh, medical professional to understand what's best for them. Well, we're about out of time. Anything you wanted to leave us with today, Stephen? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, you know, we already covered, you know, the, the key things, but uh, we found that, you know, if you have a high, an elevated risk of, of uh, a cardiovascular event and you're between the ages of 40 and 59, it may be worth having a conversation with your, your medical professional to see if aspirin um, may be good for you. If you're over the age of, of 60, um, it, it may not make sense uh, to start aspirin. But the task force found that overall um, the harms are, are more likely to exceed the benefits for that group. And if, if you are currently using aspirin um, and are over the age of 60, certainly talk to your medical professional to see what's best for you. For some people, it may make sense to stop, uh, but for others, it may not. Some, some of our modeling findings found that uh, people who started before the age of 60 may um, continue to benefit using aspirin uh, over a longer, longer period. So it's certainly important for patients to talk with their own medical professional to see what's best for them. Thanks again to my guest, Stephen Damer, Senior Research Investigator at Health Partners Institute. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. We'll have more Minnesota Matters after this.
So you see, son, good manners are very, very important. Someday, many years from now, when you're a grown-up, you'll be a man. And when you are, you should be a gentleman. Do you want me to go through it one more time? Yes. Yes, please. Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open for ladies. If a door's shut, then knock first. Don't burp, don't swear, don't speak with a mouthful, don't reach across people's plates, keep your elbows off the table. What tape? And don't interrupt. While we're at it, don't stare, don't use foul language, don't call people names, but do remember people's names. Always share your toys, play nice, and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. On the bus, give up your seat to anyone who has trouble standing. Bottom line, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. That's 2min2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesota got some good news last week when the Big Ten Conference announced the Target Center would be the host venue of the 2023-24 Big Ten Women's Basketball Tournament and the 2024 Big Ten Men's Basketball Tournament. Minnesota Sports and Events Senior Vice President Matt Munier gave us details of the bid last week. Now tells MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm this week that ample hotels, restaurants, along with Minneapolis Skyway System was a big draw. That's one of our selling points for uh, when we're going out to bid and, and host these events is to demonstrate the walkability and our compact urban footprint and the connectivity, like, as you said, with the team hotels. I mean, each of these Big Ten tournaments, like I said, 14 teams, we could have 14 different team hotels all within 10 blocks of Target Center, pretty much all connected by Skyway. So that accessibility and convenience is really, really important because it saves time. It enhances the student athletes experience if they can walk or just uh, if they can see the venue from their hotel. Uh, it's just a much more enjoyable experience. And, you know, folks like the Big Ten really responded to that. And having that connectivity in the Skyway uh, means a lot to the fans, too, because, as you said, weather you know, we, we can't necessarily guarantee weather, but we can guarantee the skyways are usually about 70 degrees uh, and comfortable and open for these events. So that's one of our big assets that we like to sell for sure. We want to make sure that all three tournaments are really accessible to locals. And so we'll work closely with the Big Ten to identify the timeline for ticket sales. Traditionally, uh, tickets will go on sale a little bit later in the year, obviously. So we got a little bit of time, but we want to spread the message so people are aware of when those ticket sales uh, will launch. Uh, because we want folks to have the opportunity and they're going to be very reasonably priced tickets, particularly for the women's basketball tournament for a, a family of four uh, to be able to attend these games. And like I said, there's going to be a lot of games to choose from 13 games over five days. It's going to be a really affordable experience. And so looking forward to sharing uh, those opportunities, you know, a quick story for the women's final four. We actually got a call from a dad in Duluth who is a, uh, had two young daughters who play girls basketball and he called, he said, boy, I wasn't even aware that the women's final four was coming to Minneapolis. And we decided as a family, rather than fly south to warmer weather, we're going to do our family trip to Minneapolis for the women's final four because we love women's basketball. And it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the locals. And I would think, you know, to have, you know, it, it's a big 10 footprint that, that has grown now to cover just about half the country. So you'll have people coming in from all over. But I also suppose Minneapolis proper, which is part of, I suppose, what, what you guys are overseeing as well restaurants, hotels, and that. It, it's also going to be big that somebody from Burnsville or Blaine or Maple Grove 
even the suburbs 20 minutes away come in and maybe spend some money and hang out and take part in the events and attend the games and those kind of things. Yep, exactly. And that's part of our pitch to the Big Ten is that we know our community shows out and really supports these events. And that's the, the type of folks that you just identified, Mike, is we want locals who love basketball or want to support women's and men's collegiate basketball to come in and attend these events. And we're going to have some ancillary programming as well, other ways for folks to experience these events. So we'll kind of roll some of those plans out as we get closer to the dates, but know that it'll be a lot more than just basketball taking place. So we want to create really memorable experiences. And and quite honestly, you know, we hope that we set records for attendance. So the Big Ten understands just how valuable and how well these events do in Minneapolis and in our region. So we can host these things on a regular rotation because Indianapolis and Chicago, they've kind of owned these events rotating every other year, especially women's basketball has almost primarily been held exclusively in Indianapolis. So this is our one opportunity to show that, you know, Minnesota comes out for these Big Ten uh, basketball events And if we can turn out like we think we will, if we can get locals to really support this event, create a memorable fan experience, uh, we hope to host these things on a regular basis. You mentioned that part of it with the with the locals. I want to ask about your group, Minnesota Sports and Events, um, because I think a lot of people love the fact that a Super Bowl showed up here, a Final Four, both men's and women's, and the X Games, and some of these great events, and now Big Ten basketball. Um, but it doesn't just happen overnight, and it isn't just a click of the fingers. Uh, tell us about your group and, and, and how you go about uh, procuring these events for, for Minnesota. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So Minnesota Sports and Events, it's our regional uh, sports organization uh, that represents kind of the Twin Cities area to really uh, have a focused effort on bidding and hosting uh, these mega events that drive economic impact, reputational impact, and we want to leave a, a lasting legacy with each of these events that comes to town. So it's an incredibly competitive time right now to, uh, to secure these events, whether it's, you know, the Big Ten basketball tournament. We're trying to bring back a future women's Final Four, a future men's Final Four. Uh, there's events out there like NFL Draft and WrestleMania. There's a ton of events out there that drive significant impact. We're really fortunate to have partners at the local convention and visitors bureau. All the professional sports teams are on board. The venues are on board. We have one united community to really go after these events. And so we're working to create kind of a sustainable funding model so we can compete a little more with places like Indianapolis and Texas and Ohio that have these funding models in place to secure these events on a much more regular basis than we have. So we believe we're going to get there hopefully in the near future and be more competitive and host these events, like you said, Mike, on a much more regular basis because it is competitive. Other markets out there are a little bit more advanced with us in terms of the funding and the financial package that they can offer to the NCA and other event organizers out there. But we know if it's apples to apples, our community, we believe, is the best in the country, uh, specifically our facilities and the people we have here, how our volunteers show up and welcome visitors to our region. Uh, we just have so many assets and we're really proud of what we can bring to this community. And there's going to be a lot more great events to come. Trust us. That's Senior Vice President of Minnesota Sports and Events, Matt Munir, with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm in part two of their interview on some big basketball news hitting Minneapolis this month. That is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.